Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the second lecture in the Oxford Women of Achievement series. I'm Rebecca Surrender, the University Advocate and Pro Vice Chancellor for Diversity, and it's my delight and honor to host this evening's event and to, in particular, welcome our speaker, Catherine Viner, Editor-in-Chief of Guardian News and Media. It's wonderful to see so many people here, um, particularly with such a, a very nice uh, um, sunny evening out there, and particularly in the run-up to exam season, and it's clearly a great testament to the level of interest in Catherine Viner's work. My role here tonight is, of course, to introduce our speaker, but before I do that properly, I just want to take a few minutes to tell you a little bit about the Oxford Women of Achievement lecture series itself. The brainchild originally of Sally Mapston, together with perhaps what's best described as a small group of like-minded females, female colleagues, the series is unique in being wholly dedicated to female speakers. It's intended to showcase the enormous range of women's careers and achievements, both because that's worth celebrating in its own right, but also in part to motivate other, all women, both within and outside Oxford, to be inspired to aim high and to find their own path in doing so. We kick-started the series in February this year with a lecture by Dame Sally Davis, Chief Medical Officer for England. Dame Sally spoke passionately about her efforts to combat, combat antimicrobial resistance globally, as well as her own personal journey to her current professional position. Tonight, of course, we focus on journalism and the media, and after this, we will continue over the course of the next four terms with speakers who've made their mark in a wide range of fields, including higher education and the arts. We have asked all our speakers to talk about not only their substantive field of work and their expertise, but also their experiences and challenges as women in these roles. As you enter this room, you'll have seen what, that we are also celebrating women in Oxford through visual display. The images of women portrayed are part of the Diversifying Portraiture Project, which, like the Oxford Women of Achievement series, is funded by the VC's Diversity Fund, Vice-Chancellor's Diversity Fund. The Portraiture Project aims to illustrate the diversity of Oxford's past and present, to widen the range of people represented throughout the university, and to encourage its increasing inclusivity. It reflects not only Oxford's strong heritage, but along with this series, it also signals its current aspiration. Precisely in that vein, let me turn to tonight's lecture and say again what a great pleasure it is to introduce our speaker this evening, Catherine Viner, Editor-in-Chief of The Guardian. As we all know, one of the UK's most influential and leading daily newspapers and global um, in its reach. Catherine is the paper's 12th editor and the first female to hold the post in its almost 200-year history. She's been with the paper for just two of those decades, um, but in her 18 years with The Guardian, she's had an impressive and remarkable journey through the organization, doing pretty much every editorial job within it and picking up awards and accolades along the way. She began school life as a student at Ripon Grammar School in North Yorkshire and subsequently read English at Pembroke College here at Oxford, so we of course claim her as our own, one of our own. But her journalistic ambitions began long before university life and she actually had her first Guardian 
article published back in 1987 as a schoolgirl reflecting on the demise of the O-level. I should perhaps have to translate for younger uh, members of the audience <laughs> that the O-level was the predecessor of the GCSE. Some of us still call GCSEs O-levels. And quintessentially reflecting the British understatement and, and deference of that era, the O stood for ordinary. After university, Catherine worked briefly for the UK edition of Cosmopolitan magazine before joining the Sunday Times newspaper as a features writer in 94 and then was hired by The Guardian in 97. For her work on the paper's Saturday magazine, Guardian Weekend, she was named in 2002 Newspaper Magazine Editor of the Year by the British Society of Magazine Editors. Just to give you a sense of the range of her flair and talent, during that period, she was also on the board of the Royal Court Theatre in London and collaborated with the British actor Alan Rickman to compile the one-woman play, My Name is Rachel Corrie, from the writings of an American pro-Palestinian activist who died in 2003 while protesting in the Gaza Strip. Catherine became deputy editor of The Guardian between 2008-12 and then oversaw the highly successful 2013 launch of Guardian Australia the newspaper's online Australian edition. Under her leadership, its site quickly attracted millions of readers in less than a year and became widely commended for its coverage on climate change and immigration issues. In 2004, Catherine became editor-in-chief of Guardian US, the organization's New York City-based digital edition. In 2015, Catherine formally took up the position of editor-in-chief of The Guardian itself replacing Alan Rusbridger, who of course is now principal of Lady Margaret Hall here in Oxford. And if you believe what you read in the papers, um, it was clearly uh, together with her great global experience, depth and breadth of that, but also her experience of digital media that was considered one of the key factors in her landing the top editorial post. And it's unsurprising therefore that in fact that's what she's going to talk to us about this evening. Um, before I formally thank Catherine, I would say please, uh, after, we, after we finish, after Catherine finishes talking, we will have a Q&A session which will be led by Professor Sally Mapston, so please don't all vacate quickly. There will be a time, uh, an opportunity for you to, to ask questions. So thank you very much, Catherine, for making time in your very busy schedule for joining us this evening. Colleagues and guests, please join me in welcoming, welcoming Catherine Viner. Thank you very much, Dr. Surrender, for that uh, very generous um, introduction, and to uh, Professor Mapston and Oxford University for inviting me back to speak today. Um, this examination hall isn't giving me any disturbing flashbacks whatsoever. <laughs> it's uh, no chilling memories at all. Um, my speech today is called uh, Truth and Reality in a Hyper-Connected World. One Monday, last September, Britain woke up to a depraved news story that stopped the country in its tracks. The Prime Minister, David Cameron, had committed an obscene act with the dead pig's head, according to the Daily Mail. I quote, a distinguished Oxford contemporary claims Cameron once took part in an outrageous initiation ceremony at a Piers Gaveston event involving a dead pig. Piers Gaveston, as you all know, is the name of a riotous Oxford University dining society. 
His extraordinary suggestion is that the future PM inserted a private part of his anatomy into the animal. The authors claim the source is an MP who says he has seen photographic evidence. As you might imagine, such a story, which was an extract from a new biography called Call Me Dave, caused a furore. It was gross. It was a great opportunity to humiliate an elitist PM. It rang true for a man of decadence. Nicola Sturgeon said the allegations had entertained the whole country. Paddy Ashtown made jokes about Cameron hogging the headlines. Hashtag Piggate and hashtag Hammeron trended on Twitter for days. Number 10 said it would not dignify the allegations with a response before being forced to deny the story. A privileged man was sexually shamed in a way that had nothing to do with his divisive politics and in a way he could never really respond to, but who cares? He could take it. Then something significant happened. The journalist Isabel Oakeshott, one of the two authors of the biography, along with Lord Ashcroft, a billionaire businessman, went on TV that night and admitted that she, the author of the allegations, did not know whether or not her huge, scandalous scoop was, in fact, true. On Channel 4 News, she said, we couldn't get to the bottom of that source's allegations, so we merely reported the account that the source gave us. So someone said something outrageous with no evidence and off the record and anonymously, and that was enough? We don't say whether we believe it to be true, she said. So there is no evidence that the British Prime Minister inserted a private part of his anatomy into a dead pig's head. The authors say they tried to check the facts, but when they didn't get any proof, they went with it anyway, because it was a good story. Oakeshott went still further in absolving herself of the journalistic responsibility to uncover evidence. She said, it's up to other people to decide whether the allegations have any credibility or not. So now, it's not up to the journalist to prove something. It's up to the reader, despite knowing nothing about the identity of the source or his evidence, to make up their own mind. Based on what? Gut instinct? Intuition? Mood? Does the truth matter anymore? This incident brings to mind Marshall McLuhan, who in 1967 predicted our chaotic modern age. He said, we have begun again to structure the primordial feeling, the tribal emotions, from which a few centuries of literacy divorced us. In his visionary classic, The Medium is the Message, he showed how 500 years of the printing press had imposed a rigid visual structure on our psyches that the electronic media was rapidly erasing. We were, he wrote, and this is decades before the internet existed, but he was overwhelmed by the arrival of mass television. We were moving away from the fixed certainties of the era of the book, contained, distinct, hierarchical, towards a pre-enlightenment phase of the flowing, leaving chaos in its, wake, in its wake. In this era of what sociologist Zygmunt Bauman calls liquid modernity, we are in tumult, disorientated by the dra dramatic transition, laughing at grotesque humiliations of the powerful, failing to care when the author says they can't be sure they're true. 
In this chaos, we're in the midst of a series of confusing battles between opposing forces, between truth and falsehood, rumour and fact, shaming and decency, kindness and cruelty, between the few and the many, hierarchies and the mass, connection and alienation, between Tim Berners-Lee's view that the web should be for everyone and Facebook's gated enclosure, between an informed public which is confident in its civic responsibilities versus a misguided mob. It's not clear which way things will go, how all of these battles will be resolved. We probably won't end up in a web-driven utopia. We probably won't end up in the new dark ages either. But increasingly, a fact is just a view that you feel to be true. We must be alert to the consequences of this, and the media has a powerful part to play. Truth, of course, is a troubling concept. In the words of authors Peter Chippendale and Chris Horry, the phrase, the truth, is a bold statement which every newspaper prints at its peril. There are usually several conflicting truths on any given subject, but in the era of the fixed certainties of the printing press, words on a page nailed things down, whether they were true or not. The information felt more true because of the frame of the print era and the fact we all shared a common set of facts, true or not. This settled so-called truth was usually handled down from, handed down from above, an established truth, usually established by the establishment. But now people just distrust so much of what is presented as fact, particularly if the fact doesn't fit their story. And while some of that just distrust is misplaced, some of it isn't. In the digital age, it's easier than ever to share fake information and publish it at once and make out it's true. This can involve spreading false information about world events. Sometimes this is out of fear and the need to know something, anything, as events are reported in real time. During the 2015 Paris terror attacks, various fake rumours were spread on social media, such as that the Louvre and the Pompidou Centre had been hit and that Francois Hollande had had a stroke. You needed trusted news organisations like The Guardian to debunk such tall tales. At other times, pure malice lies behind the rumours, with fake information spread in order to attack an individual in a way that can be personally devastating to them. Following the Paris attacks again, Photoshop pictures of a man called Virenda Jubal appeared across social media and as deep into the mainstream as on the front page of one of Spain's biggest newspapers, suggesting he was one of the terrorists who had blown himself up. Jabal is, in fact, a Canadian Sikh journalist who had criticised Gamergate, which is the movement which claims it's about ethics in games journalism, but is seen by many as a mass campaign of misogynistic harassment. Someone posted a picture of, gun to, of a gun to Jabal, a clear personal threat. Police told him to stay off social media for his own safety, and he was forced out of our online global community. Similarly dark motives are behind the plethora of paid manipulations of the media, which are easier than ever to pass off as fact in a world where sourcing is less rigorous. 
astroturfing, in which people are paid to promote a particular message in order to drive out genuine oppositional voices, pioneered by the tobacco industry, is rampant online, and also some political regimes pay teams of keyboard warriors to spread propaganda, as in Putin's troll army. News organisations sometimes fall for these, and while the internet isn't to blame for them, the responsibility clearly lies with the corporations who want to bend the rules, or anti-democratic governments. It has certainly made these interventions a lot easier to do. Bad facts like good facts, spread via what is known as an information cascade. Daniel Keats Citron writes, people forward on what others think, even if the information is false, misleading or incomplete, because they think they have learned something valuable. This cycle repeats itself, and before you know it, the cascade has unstoppable momentum. You like a friend's recommendation on Facebook, perhaps to show kinship or agreement or that you're in the know, and thus you increase the visibility of their post to others. Social media tools surround us with ideas with which we already agree, which are then spread to others, says Citron, and so it goes. It used to be that everyone got their information from the same sources. As President Obama put it in London last week, in the United States it used to be that we had three television stations, which meant that everybody was watching the same thing and had the same understanding of what the facts were on any given issue, for better and for worse. Now it's far more diffuse. When groups with similar views get together, people hear echoes of themselves. Citroen says, learning that others share their worldview boosts their confidence. People embrace more radical views because they feel more confident and because they want to be liked. The feeling of anonymity minimizes perceived differences among online users, so they feel part of a group. As a result, the internet, which in so many ways connects us, may also be polarizing us. The Harvard academic Cass Sunstein has studied the concept of the law of polarization, the idea that if people who oppose an issue talk to each other, they become ever more strongly opposed than they were previously. Commenting on Sunstein's research, Danish philosopher Vincent Hendricks wrote, polarization explains why it might not always be an advantage to be in the company of like-minded people or people sharing the same view, no matter how comfortable it may seem. If we're already in agreement about something, we only grow to agree even more by discussing the matter. The mere discussion of or deliberation over a certain matter or opinion in a group may shift the position of the entire group in a more radical direction. When Ellie Parisa, the founder of Upworthy, coined the idea of the filter bubble in 2011, he was talking about how the personalized web, and in particular, Google's personalized search function, which means that no two people's Google searches yield the same results, means that we never get exposed to information that challenges us or broadens our worldview. We get trapped in our own filter bubble. Parisa's plea at the time was that those running social media platforms should ensure that their algorithms prioritize countervailing views and news that's important, not just the stuff that's most popular or self-validating. 
But since 2011, the filter bubble he describes has become much more extreme. The self-selected silos of the digital world have been dramatically escalated by the massive success of Facebook, which launched only in 2004, but has 1.6 billion users worldwide. Facebook is now the dominant way for people to find news on the internet. In fact, it is dominant in ways that would have been absolutely impossible to imagine in the newspaper era. As Emily Bell, director of the Tau Centre for Digital Journalism at Columbia University and a member of the Scott Trust, which owns The Guardian, writes, social media has swallowed everything. Political campaigns, banking systems, personal histories, the leisure industry, retail, even government and security. But the focus of Bell's work is journalism, and there, as she outlines, the impact is particularly seismic. Bell writes that our new e news ecosystem has changed more dramatically in the past five years than perhaps at any time in the past 500. One of the reasons for this, beyond huge technological developments from virtual reality to artificial intelligence, is that the future of publishing is being put into the hands of the few who now control the destiny of the many. As she explains, news publishers have lost control over the distribution of the journalism they create. Social media and platform companies took over what publishers couldn't have built even if they wanted to, she writes. Now, the news is filtered through algorithms and platforms which are opaque and unpredictable. This means that social media companies have become overwhelmingly powerful in manipulating what we read and how they make their money. Bell claims that there is a far greater concentration of power in this respect than there ever has been in the past. An important witness to this radical change is Hossein Dadakshan, an Iranian blogger who was imprisoned by the regime in Tehran mostly for his activity online. Darakshan spent six years in jail from 2008 to 2014. When he was arrested, he writes, blogs were gold and bloggers were rock stars. He had 20,000 readers a day, despite being blocked within Iran, and felt part of the interconnected spirit of the web, as envisaged by its inventor, Tim Berners-Lee, who famously said of the web, this is for everyone a key element of the opening ceremony of the London 2012 Olympics. In 2008, the hyperlink, which is when you link out to something else on the web, away from what you're writing or reading, was, says Derek Shan, a way to abandon centralization, all the links, lines, and hierarchies, and replace them with something more distributed, a system of nodes and networks. Now, the hyperlink, and its open spirit is devalued currency. The highly popular social network Instagram, owned by Facebook, and the rapidly growing chat app Snapchat don't allow links out of their ecosystems at all. Spaces curated by editors have often been replaced, have in many cases been replaced by a stream of information chosen by friends or contacts or family or by a mysterious algorithm defined by technology platforms. As Direction writes, the prominence of the stream today doesn't just make vast chunks of the internet 
biased against quality. It also means a deep betrayal of the diversity that the World Wide Web had originally envisioned. The idea of a wide open World Wide Web has been replaced by platforms and publishers developing products that maximize the amount of time you spend with them and finding clever ways to stop you leaving. As Caitlin Dewey wrote in the Washington Post, Facebook pioneered a system where our online identities were forever welded to our real life ones. If the early web was like a sparsely populated frontier town, Facebook is the planned community, the picket fence suburb that followed once the pioneers had moved on. By constricting our online selves to our offline identities, Facebook basically obliterated the infinite possibilities and the intimate, interest-based communities of the social web. And that's not the worst of it. Dirakshan continues, the scariest outcome of the centralization of information in the age of social networks is something else. It is making us all much less powerful in relation to governments and corporations. He concludes, in the past, the web was powerful and serious enough to land me in jail. Today, it feels like little more than entertainment. We are less like civic actors and more like simple consumers. This change has big consequences. As Astra Taylor writes in her book, The People's Platform, technology companies such as Facebook and Google are so influential and ubiquitous that they pose a whole new set of challenges to the health of our culture. Right now, there is very little to guide us as we attempt to think through these predicaments. We are at a loss, in part because we have wholly adopted the language and vision offered up by Silicon Valley executives and the new media boosters who promote their interests. The digital thinker Jonathan Zittrain says in his book, The Future of the Internet and How to Stop It, that the internet has moved from being open and creative to becoming fixed and tethered. With the unwitting help of its users, the generative internet is on a path to lockdown, ending its cycle of innovation and facilitating unsettling new kinds of control. Whether they mean to or not, technology companies have created a honeypot of all of our personal information, which governments and security agencies and law enforcement are only too keen to access, as the Edward Snowden revelations showed us. This is happening right now. In April, The Guardian revealed that the Australian police had sought access to Guardian Australia journalist Paul Farrell's metadata without a warrant in order to track down the source of his stories about Australia's controversial immigration system. They did so without Farrell's knowledge, and it only came to light as a result of a request he made under the Privacy Act. In the UK, despite revelations that the police used surveillance powers to access metadata of journalists from The Sun in relation to Andrew Mitchell's alleged use of the word pleb to police officers in Downing Street, and from the Mail on Sunday relating to the prosecution of Chris Hune, these powers continue to be exercised in the dark. The decision about whether or not to challenge disclosure of the metadata to the authorities doesn't rest with the journalists or their editors, but with the technology companies. For democracy, 
And for our liberty, this is chilling. When you consider that those same companies were implicated in the Snowden documents for the wholesale handover of customer bulk data to government law enforcement and intelligence agencies. Digital platforms used to be groovy little startups. Now they are the new establishment, the networked power centers of society and of our lives. If Facebook seems closed and commodified compared to the early days of the web, private chat apps take that silification a step further. Chat apps are apps like WhatsApp and Messenger, both owned by, you guessed it, Facebook. Um, the chat apps enable users to create private groups to share messages, pictures, and videos with a chosen and small circle of people. Chat apps are defined by a commitment to privacy and a rejection of the necessity for a public profile tied to the real self. As Alexis Lloyd and Matt Boggy put it for the Neiman Lab, there seems to be a desire, especially amongst younger cohorts, to communicate in much more carefully protected and curated social spaces. Young people in particular feel a need to retreat from the web to a safer space, and really, who can blame them when 18 to 29-year-olds are the most likely to have experienced harassment online? The move to the more intimate social media of chat apps can be seen as a reclaiming of privacy away from the public sharing required on Facebook, an establishment of close connections with like-minded people. But at the same time, the closeness of a self-selected group invites more groupthink than ever before. And because these apps are private, they are separated away from the public space, from the civic sphere. In our silos, our private spaces, separated from each other, we start to see the world differently from everyone else. Meanwhile, the age of constant information can be overwhelming. Lawrence Scott, in his book on how digital culture is changing us, the four-dimensional human, writes that smartphones can bring with them a persistent sense of impending trouble because news is now constant and unavoidable and in your pocket, in your hand, mesmerizing, addictive, never letting you go. This morbid backdrop to daily life produces a form of unregulated consumption that is altering our ability to prioritize our fears and is encouraging in those susceptible to those ideas a sense of time winding down, he writes. This can provide a kind of nihilism, a sense that nothing matters. We careen from outrage to outrage and forget each one very quickly. It's doomsday every afternoon. And then we move on to the next Domesday, the next afternoon, an exhausting process in which you lose your bearings and which makes you wonder, will we miss the real Domesday if it comes, passing it off as just another tweet storm? In McLuhan's prophetic words, the instantaneous world of electric informational media involves all of us all at once. No detachment or frame is possible. Indeed, he adds, we are back in acoustic space. In this context, doomsday every afternoon, information shared in private and polarised groups, the way we've been separated off from anyone we disagree with so that disagreement can feel like an outrageous affront, 
Cruelty is flourishing online. It has become easy to destroy people's lives, or at least force them off our online public spaces for a while. In a generalised new culture of cruelty and group shaming of others. As John Ronson writes in his book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, we are living through a great renaissance of public shaming. After a lull of 180 years, public punishments were phased out in 1837 in the United Kingdom and 1839 in the United States, public shaming is back in a big way. Online users band together in an unforgiving mass to humiliate anyone who posts an ill-advised tweet late at night or says a word out of line. In Sherry Turkle's words, we hope for compassion, but often get the cruelty of strangers. There are many examples of this, particularly from women online. For women, the web we were promised certainly doesn't feel like the web we have. Guardian US writer Jessica Valenti, who is the Guardian contributor most targeted for harassment online, says, imagine going to work every day and walking through a gauntlet of 100 people saying, you're stupid, you're terrible, you suck, I can't believe you get paid for this. It's a terrible way to go to work. A more extreme example is of games developer Cathy Sierra, who in 2007 abruptly cancelled a planned appearance at a tech conference because she had received so many death threats. Or as she wrote later, it began with threats, rape, dismemberment, the usual. Sierra wrote after her ordeal, I have cancelled all speaking engagements. I'm afraid to leave my yard. I will never feel the same. I will never be the same. Many trolls, that's the internet term for people who abuse others online, are vicious misogynists, no question, and pose a threat to women's physical and psychological safety. But an interesting fact about some of them is that they are often deeply ashamed when attention is drawn to what they've done. Last year, Guardian columnist Lindy West, who as a feminist writer receives a lot of unpleasant and downright threatening harassment online, confronted her cruelest troll. The troll had set up a fake Twitter account in the name of her beloved dead father, using a real photo of him, and used it to smear her. West wrote to the troll, explaining what it felt like, and the next day she received an email from him. He was deeply apologetic, ashamed. He'd made a donation to a relevant charity, and significantly he wrote... It finally hit me. There is a living, breathing human being who is reading this shit. It's as if the anonymity of the web, and even if you're not actually anonymous, you somehow feel that you are, or at least you feel unnoticed. And the group polarisation described earlier means that you suspend your real-life, rational, probably mostly decent self, and instead become cruel online. Perhaps because you feel your target has advantages and privileges you lack. Perhaps because you thought the digital era promised a more levelled world, but it doesn't feel that way to you. Why is this happening? Is digital showing how, as Jermaine Greer once said, women have very little idea how much men hate them? Is it related to the shocking lack of women working in technology, the lack of female engineers designing these products and systems we all now use, 
The number of female, female employees working in technology jobs at Google is 17%. At Facebook, 15%. At Twitter, 10%. Or is it a result and a symbol of our deranged confusion about the changes digital is forcing on everything we do, from how we speak, to how we treat each other, to how we love, to how we bring up children? Is it a sign that we haven't settled on our new social norms, just as we haven't worked out whether something being true matters anymore? When I took over as Editor-in-Chief of The Guardian last June, it was a priority for me that we try to tackle this issue. Outright threats to our writers are rare on The Guardian, and we employ an excellent team of moderators on our staff who help make the conversations as engaging as possible. And indeed, we host enlightening conversations between readers every day. But as anyone who has ever gone below the line knows, that's not always the case. And at The Guardian the last few weeks, we've been running a project called The Web We Want to try to end online abuse and have better conversations on the web. The idea of readers working with journalists to produce richer, more knowledgeable, more expert journalism is an exciting one. Perhaps the most powerful example of the value of reader interaction I can think of is a crowdsourced investigative and interactive Guardian US project called The Countered. After Michael Brown, an unarmed 18-year-old, was shot dead in Ferguson, Missouri in August 2014, we were startled to discover that neither the police nor the government collected the details or even the number of people killed by law enforcement worldwide. I'm sorry, nationwide. So the Guardian set out to establish how many people were killed in 2015 by asking our audience. The Guardian in the US has a large number of readers, about a third of our global total, and they engage with the project with enthusiasm. Thousands of Americans contacted us in a variety of ways, often via social media, after more than 35,000 people joined the counted communities on Facebook and Twitter. Using crowdsourcing tools, we reached the poor and black communities, which are often most, the most often the victims of police killings. We were able to name five people killed by police who had been kept anonymous by authorities until then. We uncovered a number of shocking individual incidents which we reported in depth. And the Attorney General, Loretta Lynch, announced that the Department of Justice would be trialling a new open source method to count killings of police around, by police around the country along the same lines as the Guardian's methodology. All of that down to interactions with our audience. But from the earliest days that we opened comments on the Guardian in 2006, it has sometimes been brutal. Online debate at its worst can be aggressive and furious, sexist and racist. Our data analysis of the 70 million comments left on The Guardian since 2006 shows what many suspected, that women get disproportionate vitriol online, and so do black and Muslim writers. Of the top 10 opinion writers with most blocked comments, eight are women, and the other two are black men. The Guardian is the first media or technology organization ever to undertake this work and to admit that there is a problem with online harassment taking place on our platform. Where are the rest? We need to take responsibility for what's happening. 
Not to close all the conversations down, although we've had to close down some on The Guardian on the subject of immigration because they are simply impossible to contain. But not to walk away and claim it's nothing to do with us, but to wrestle with what's really going on and how to deal with it. As Sarah Yong, author of The Internet of Garbage, says, if private platforms are to become communities, agoras, tiny new societies, they have to make a real effort to collect the garbage. Who takes out the rubbish? Who cleans the streets? We all have a responsibility. Let's have the debate, take out the trash, and create the web we want. Of course, the challenges facing news organizations are not just about what takes place below the line, not just the interaction. It's also what takes place above it, the news and what we publish. In the last few years, for reasons I will show, many news organizations have been forced away from public interest journalism and towards junk food journalism. Like junk food, you hate yourself when you've gorged on it. At the most extreme end, there are fake news farms, which avowedly produce journalism which looks like news but is entirely made up. Craig Silverman, in his report Lies, Damn Lies and Viral Content for the Tau Centre, highlights the practices of one such fake news company called National Report. During the Ebola crisis, it issued daily stories about infections, including a completely fake comment from a source at a ho local hospital and an invitation for readers to follow live tweets from the scene tweeted by Jane Agney, a fake reporter. It is an apparently profitable business. Of course, journalists have always got things wrong, either by mistake or prejudice or sometimes by intent. I'm thinking of the fact that Freddie Starr probably didn't eat a hamster. Women's celebrity magazines now feature endless rounds of famous people who are pregnant, but no babies ever emerge, engaged, no weddings ensue, divorced, no, nope, they're still married. Perhaps the editors assume that readers either realise that an outlandish story probably isn't true and they're entertained anyway, or they don't mind either way, or trust just isn't their thing. So it'd be a mistake anyway, to think that this is a phenomenon confined to digital media. But in the digital era, rumors and fake stories and lies are read just as widely as copper-bottomed, evidence-based facts. In fact, they're often read more widely because they're wilder than real life and more enticing for sharing. And really, who can tell the difference? And does it matter anyway? In a world of network distribution, is it anyone's responsibility to prevent lies from circulating in the world's population? This cynicism was best expressed by Nietzsche Zimmerman, Gorka's former high-traffic viral specialist who is now working at US politics site The Hill. Nowadays, it's not important if a story is real, he said in 2014. The only thing that really matters is whether people click on it. Facts, he suggests, are over. They're a relic from the age of the printing press when readers had no choice. He continued, if a person is not sharing a news story, it is, at its core, not news. This approach represents a fundamental change in news values, a consumerist shift of initiative. 
instead of strengthening social bonds or creating an informed public, or the idea of news as a civic good, a democratic necessity. It creates gangs spreading falsehoods that fit their views, reinforcing each other's beliefs, driving each other deeper into shared opinions over established facts. On your, news, on your phone, in your news feeds, all stories look the same, whether they come from a credible source or not. And increasingly, credible sources are publishing fake news too. Clickbait is king, so newsrooms will uncritically print some of the worst stuff out there, which lends legitimacy to bullshit, says Brooke Binkowski, an editor at the debunking website Snopes, in an interview with The Guardian last month. Not all newsrooms are like this. The Guardian really isn't. Uh, but a lot of them are. What is clickbait? We should be careful not to dismiss anything with an appealing digital headline as clickbait. Appealing headlines are a good thing. If they, lead a, if they lead the reader to good quality journalism, both serious and not. Clickbait should be classified instead as a story which uses an enticing headline to trick a reader into reading something which then doesn't deliver. Either the headline was misrepresentative, or the story itself is a lie, or it's just not very good. I have a theory that what distinguishes good journalism from not very good journalism is labour. The journalism that people like most is that in which they can tell someone has put a lot of work, where they can feel the effort that's been expended on their behalf and on behalf of society over tasks big or small, important or entertaining. It's the reverse of what is often called churnalism, the endless recycling of other people's stories. The trouble is, the business model of most digital news organisations is based around clicks. News media, media around the world has reached a fever pitch, possibly the apotheosis of frenzied binge publishing, chasing down clips, clicks to scrape up digital advertising's pennies and cents. And there's not much advertising to be got. According to the New York Times, Morgan Stanley predict that in the first quarter of 2016, 85 cents of every new dollar spent in online advertising will go to Google or Facebook. That used to go to news publishers. The digital advertising model doesn't currently discriminate between true or not true, just big or small. As a result, in some places, there are huge pressures placed on journalists to get traffic. As one interviewee told The Guardian, you have an editor breathing down your neck and you have to meet your targets. Another said, there is definitely a pressure to churn out stories, including dubious ones, in order to get clicks because they equal money. As Dave Weigel wrote in Slate, too good to check used to be a warning to newspaper editors not to jump on bullshit stories. Now it's a business model. Craig Silverman believes the trend stems from these three factors. First, that incentives favour moving fast and publishing content that is likely to spread. Two, the value of restraint is hard to quantify. And quality sources of information are sometimes characterised by what they don't report. And three, an onslaught of potentially newsworthy content on social networks has lowered the bar for what news organisations will follow up. 
A news publishing industry desperately chasing down every scrap of cheap traffic doesn't sound like an industry in a position of strength. And indeed, news publishing as a business is in trouble. As I outlined in my 2013 A.N. Smith lecture at the University of Melbourne, The Rise of the Reader, I believe the shift to digital publishing can have thrilling consequences for journalism. It has meant we have found new ways to get stories from our audience, from data, from social media. It has meant new ways to tell stories with interactive technologies and now with virtual reality. The Guardian last week launched our first virtual reality project called 6x9, or 9x6, sorry, 6x9 or 9x6, a virtual experience, I recommend it, a virtual experience of being in solitary confinement in a tiny, dingy cell, part of a series of reports on the use of isolation of prisoners around the world, and a truly terrifying experience. It has meant new ways to spread stories that you can, so that you can find new Guardian readers in surprising places. It has meant new ways to engage with our audiences, opening ourselves up to challenge and debate, and accepting that people who haven't been trained as journalists can, in Jeff Jarvis's words, perform acts of journalism, and that people can enter the profession through non-traditional routes, although still too few do. Journalism from The Guardian is now live and in your pocket at any time, often via Facebook. Around the world, and in my view, it shows what can be done when you combine old-fashioned reporting and verification skills with new digital techniques, not compromising on either. Serious, high-quality journalism, which is much harder to do than Facebook. That's Freudian slip. Which is much harder to do than clickbait. <laughs> Combined with the latest technological and product innovations. It is a privilege to be living these transitions and challenges every day. In fact, all day and all night, moment by moment. But while the possibilities for journalism have been strengthened by the digital developments of the last 15 years, the business model is under grave threat because however much you chase down those clicks, it will be never be enough. You'll never be as big as Google and Facebook. And if you go behind a paywall, you have a big job to do persuade, to persuade the digital consumer so used to getting everything for free and so overwhelmed with other destinations to part with cash. Josh Herman in the New York Times wrote in April that what has been a simmering worry among publishers has turned into borderline panic. With news publishers everywhere seeing profits and revenue drop dramatically, the past two weeks have provided a useful contrast to show how advertising money is flowing to digital platforms instead of publishers. Both the New York Times and Facebook have just re released their financial results for the first quarter of 2016. The New York Times announced that their operating profits had fallen by 13% to 51.5 million, healthier than most of the rest of the publishing industry, but a considerable drop. Facebook, meanwhile, revealed that their net income had tripled in the same period to a quite staggering 1.51 billion. Many journalists have lost their jobs in the last decade. The number of journalists in the UK shrank by one-third between 2001 and 2010. US newsroom declined by a similar amount between 2006 and 2013. 
In Australia, there was a 20% cut in the journalistic workforce between 2012 and 14 alone. Earlier this year at The Guardian, we announced that we would need to lose 100 journalistic positions in response to the terrible commercial conditions I have described. In March, The Independent ceased existing as a newspaper. Research by Press Gazette shows that since 2005, there has been a net reduction of 101 local newspapers in the UK. Again, not due to a problem with journalism, but due to a problem with funding it. The consequences of losing journalists go beyond a workplace issue. It has an impact on our culture as well. As German philosopher Jürgen Habermas put it in Süddeutsche Zeitung, when reorganisation and cost-cutting in this core area jeopardise accustomed journalistic standards, it hits at the very heart of the political public sphere. Because without the flow of information gained through extensive research, and without the stimulation of arguments based on expertise that doesn't come cheap, public communication loses its discursive vitality. The public media would then cease to resist populist tendencies and could no longer fulfil the fu function it should in the context of a democratic constitutional state. Perhaps then the focus of the news industry needs to turn to commercial innovation, how to rescue the funding of journalism, which is what is truly under threat. Journalism may have innovated in dramatic ways in the last two decades, but business models have not. In the words of my colleague Mary Hamilton, The Guardian's executive editor for Audience, we've transformed everything about our journalism and not enough about our businesses. James Curran, Natalie Fenton and Des Friedman in Misunderstanding the Internet have a list of radical suggestions for what they call redistributional interventions to halt the crisis, including attacks on advertising, the yields of which would be ring-fenced for the production of public interest journalism, Broadband infrastructures change so that they're constructed as public utilities designed to serve the needs of citizens. And the distribution of journalism on networks regulated in the name of the public and not controlled by major internet players like Google and Facebook. Or perhaps we could just force the big technology firms to pay their taxes. In the meantime, the person who founded the standard business model of digital journalism, free access, Large scale, not much original reporting, writers paid very little or not at all, that's Arianna Huffington, is one of the few who got very rich out of it. She sold out to AOL in 2011, making $315 million. Huffington has just published a book on the idea that it's good to get more sleep. <laughs> and certainly, the crisis in the funding of journalism might make you want to hide beneath the covers and never come out. The impact on journalism of the crisis in the business model is that in chasing down cheap clicks at the expense of accuracy and veracity, news organisations undermine the very reason they exist, to tell the truth and find things out. To report, report, report. Many newsrooms are in danger of losing what matters most about journalism. The valuable civic pounding the streets, sifting the database, asking difficult questions, hard craft, graft of uncovering things that someone somewhere doesn't want you to know. Serious public interest journalism is hard work and there's more of a need of it than ever. 
It helps keep the powerful honest. It helps people make sense of the world and their place in it. Facts and reliable information are an essential part of democracy. Old-fashioned reporting has been given a new twist in recent years by the development of collaborative projects, such as WikiLeaks and the recent Panama Papers, in which several news organisations work together. Following a leak to German newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung and facilitated by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, the Panama Papers involved a worldwide collaboration of 400 journalists from 107 media organisations in 76 countries, with The Guardian as UK partner. It meant that we could search through the enormous database of the Mossack Vonseca law firm, the biggest leak in history, and we'd do it together, each taking different themes, resisting any localised injunctions, breaking huge stories on tax avoidance among the powerful, shaking governments from Iceland to Argentina to the UK, and participating in a global public sphere. This fantastic collaborative project had the feel of a hopeful future about it, news organisations working together in the public interest rather than competing each against each other for clicks and cash. Closer to home, last week a Guardian reporter showed a more individual but very powerful example of good journalism using traditional skills to bring to light truths which are valuable to society. A two-year inquest ruled that the 96 victims of the Hillsborough tragedy in 1989 had been unlawfully killed and did not contribute to the dangerous situation at the football ground. This came at the end of an indefatigable 27-year campaign by the victims' families, the last two decades of which was reported on in great detail and, will, and with level-headed sensitivity by Guardian writer David Conn. Conn used the power of journalism to help uncover and reflect the truth about what happened at Hillsborough and the cover-up by the police. It was a classic example of a reporter holding power to account on behalf of the less powerful, on the day of the verdict of the inquest at a press conference, the families gave David a round of applause for his work. Good journalism often feels like an act of defiance. Of course, in the past, news media was often dominated by elites and, and reflected their interests. It was never a straightforward force for good and always a site of struggle. The Sun's coverage of Hillsborough has become infamous. Within days of the tragedy, the newspaper and its aggressive Thatcherite editor, Kelvin McKenzie, had started to blame the fans, suggesting that they had forced their way into the ground without tickets. But McKenzie wanted to push this further. According to Peter Chippendale and Chris Horry in Stick It Up Your Punter, the uncut story of the Sun newspaper, the reporter who was given the job of pulling together reports and copy from a news agency, Harry Arnold, told Mackenzie he felt uneasy about the story, which comprised of an all-out attack on Liverpool football fans, that they were drunk. They picked the pockets of victims. They punched, kicked and urinated on police officers. They shouted that they wanted sex with a dead female victim. The fans said a high-ranking police officer quoted in the story were acting like animals. The story, write Chippendale and Horry, is a classic smear, free of any attributable evidence, and precisely fitting Mackenzie's formula 
by publicising the half-baked ignorant prejudice being voiced all over the country. But Mackenzie brushed aside Arnold's concerns. He considered a headline for the front page saying, you scum, but settled instead for the truth. Arnold told the BBC that when I saw the headline, the truth, I was aghast because that wasn't what I'd written. I'd never used the words truth. So I said to Kelvin McKenzie, you can't say that. And he said, why not? And I said, because we don't know that's the truth. This is a version of the truth. The truth, as I said, is a struggle. It takes hard graft. But the struggle is worth it. Traditional news values are important, and they matter, and they're worth defending. The arrival of the web has meant that journalists, rightly in my view, are more accountable to their audience. The hierarchies have, in some ways, been undermined, which has led, on the one hand, to connectivity and debate and a challenge to some of the old elites. And on the other, a lack of empathy, group shaming, and the reinforcement of inequality, such as the ramping up of online racism and sexism. The commonly held idea that this is a more leveled world is complicated. Yes, anyone can be a publisher on social media or a blogging platform. But as the internet becomes more commodified and less scattered, it also becomes less open to the many. As Taylor puts it, while it's true that anyone with an internet connection can speak online, that doesn't mean our megaphones blast our messages at the same volume. It's hard to argue that what happened at Hillsborough would not be different now. If 96 people were crushed to death in front of 53,000 smartphones, there were 53,000 people at that match, the photos and eyewitness accounts all posted to social media, would it have taken so long for the truth to come out? Would the crowd of fan witnesses have had more of a voice? Would the police today, or Kelvin McKenzie, be able to, to traduce the dying Liverpool supporters as they did? Would they have been able to lie so clearly and for so long? It's hard to imagine. Social media can provide an effective witness. And yet it's not the whole story. In 2009, the then British Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, told me when I interviewed him for The Guardian that social media meant that you can never have Rwanda again. The flow of information means that foreign policy can never be the same again. And then ISIS happened, and Syria, and the Central African Republic, and now Burundi, just next door to Rwanda. And in 2011, in the heady days of the Egyptian uprising, I saw the words Facebook and Google and YouTube as logos emblazoned on walls and T-shirts in Cairo, as if they were political slogans, as if being connected to the world were enough to make a revolution stick. But Egypt is now under a more repressive regime than it was under Mubarak, the president who was overthrown by the revolution. There's no doubt that, te that digital technology and smartphones strengthened and empowered the social movements of the Arab Spring. But it takes more than that to overturn those who abuse power. Social media isn't much use if it's not underpinned by a truly powerful social movement. It's the movement that's the thing, as the Hillsborough families could tell us. The challenges to the digital media model have intriguing consequences, 
as the academic Zeynep Tufeki points out in a fascinating essay in the New York Times. Donald Trump's rise is a symptom of the mass media's growing weakness, she writes, especially in controlling the limits of what it is acceptable to say. Tufeki argues, for decades, journalists at major media organisations acted as gatekeepers who passed judgment on what ideas could be publicly discussed and what was considered too radical. This, she expands, is sometimes called the Overton window, a term which refers to, refers to the range of policies that are regarded as acceptable in a political climate at any given time. What such, gate, what such gatekeepers thought was acceptable often overlapped with what those in power believed too. Conversations outside the frame of this window were not tolerated. But the dramatic expansion of news and the flourishing of alternative sources of media means that the Overton window is broken. Tufeki says, for worse, and sometimes for better, we are in an era of rapidly weakening gatekeepers. This is a key point. The weakening of gatekeepers like newspapers and broadcasters is both positive and negative. There are opportunities and there are dangers. As a result, Trump's outrageous falsehoods are allowed to flourish. For example, Tufeki witnesses Trump at a rally in North Carolina stating without challenge that Congress funded ISIS. But also, she writes, Trump voices truths outside the Overton window which had been largely ignored, especially by Republican elites, citing Trump's, Trump's frequent referencing of free trade deals that benefit corporations but not workers, a theme fascinatingly excavated by Thomas Frank in his Guardian article, Millions of Ordinary Americans Support Donald Trump and Here's Why. Indeed, those truths have not only been ignored by Republican elites, but also by most of the media. But the public knows these things to be true because they are living them. Bernie Sanders has broken the Overton window in the US on the left by talking about universal health care. In Britain, Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn talks about nationalisation and nuclear weapons, themes that have been outside of polite political discourse for years. UKIP leader Nigel Farage talks about immigrants in the ways that have not been acceptable for decades. Zach Goldsmith runs a blatantly inflammatory and racist campaign to be London mayor. Matthew Goodwin wrote in The Guardian that UKIP's Nigel Farage appeals beyond party lines to struggling people who feel like strangers in a society whose ruling elites do not talk to them or value the things that matter to them. But when a prevailing mood is anti-elite and anti-power and anti-managerialist politicians and anti-triangulation, then people don't, just, don't trust any big institutions, and that includes the media all the media. Of the Trump supporters, Tupeki writes, they share personal stories that support their common narrative, which mixes falsehoods and facts, often ignored by those powerful institutions they know now loathe with the politics of racial resentment. She adds, Mr. Trump and his fans have broken the Overton window and there's no going back. Oxford University had its beginnings at the end of the Dark Ages, an era of absolute information control. 
Knowledge was a privilege tightly run by two giant forces, institutionalized religion and absolute monarchies. In the medieval era, and for some time after that, access to information, to education, to doctrine, was decided by a powerful elite. They saw it as their role and responsibility to filter information, even as unofficial news, gossip, and rumor flowed freely among the population. All that changed with the arrival of the printing press. It challenged the control of knowledge distribution. The old oligarchies were held to account more frequently for any abuse of their roles and responsibilities. The control filters on information and knowledge began to break down. Writers began to hold power to account and editors decided how best to spread information. Readers hungry for news and information were ready to pay for knowledge. More than 1,500 years later, what have we become? Unlike the last dark ages, when power was invested in absolutely rigid control of information and knowledge, we now face a potential new dark age in which power is held by dominant institutions who champion largely unfiltered access to information. It is a power struggle, and we have to decide whose internet is it. As Taylor writes, we are at risk of starving in the midst of plenty. Just as, despite the abundance of food, many of us are not sufficiently nourished. The overload of information and viral media have left us needing, longing for, meaningful news and culture. I believe that a strong journalistic culture is worth fighting for, and so is a business model that serves and rewards a media which puts the search for truth at the heart of everything, and so creates an informed, active public that scrutinises the powerful, not an ill-informed reactionary gang that attacks the vulnerable. Traditional news values must be embraced and celebrated, reporting, verifying, being on the ground, gathering together eyewitness statements, a serious attempt to discover what really happened. And we are privileged to live in an era where we can use many new technologies and turn to our readers to help us do that. But we must also grapple with the issues underpinning digital culture and realise that the shift from print to digital media was never just about technology. Issues such as online harassment, the understaffing of many news publishers, the closing of good quality sources of information, commodification, nihilistic journalism in the name of clicks, the Overton window, we can't deny them or imperiously say they don't matter or think they're all good or all bad or leave these fights to technology companies or governments with different interests. We need to embrace new technologies, absolutely. But it won't count for anything if we don't also address the new power dynamics of the era, the shifting flows. Technology and media don't exist in a bubble. They help shape society, just as they are shaped by it in turn. In the words of academics Curran, Fenton and Friedman, the internet itself is not constituted solely by its technology, but also by the way it is funded and organized, by the way it is designed, imagined and used, and by the way it is regulated and controlled. That means engaging with people as civic actors, citizens, equals, not as dumb consumers or hungry mobs. It's about holding power to account, 
fighting for a public space and taking responsibility for creating the kind of world we want to live in. Thank you very much.